Uh, we've just got a couple of more weeks left of uh, our series through the life of Joseph. I hope it's been a blessing to you. We'll be in Genesis chapter number 46 again. And uh, verse number 5, we'll read through verse 7, then skip down to verse 28 and read the rest of the chapter. Begin reading with me in verse number 5. The Bible says, And Jacob rose up from Beersheba, and the son of Israel carried Jacob their father, and their little ones and their wives, in the wagons which Pharaoh had sent to carry him, and they took their cattle and their goods, which they had gotten in the land of Canaan, and came unto Egypt. Jacob and all his seed with him, his sons, and his sons' sons with him, his daughters, and his sons' daughters, and all his seed brought he with him into Egypt. Again, skip down to verse 28. And he sent Judah before him, that is uh, Jacob, and he sent Judah before him unto Joseph to direct his face unto Goshen. And they came unto the land of Goshen, verse 29, and Joseph made ready his chariot. And went up to meet Israel his father to Goshen, and presented himself unto him, and fell upon his neck, and wept on his neck a good while. Don't forget, uh, although we just skimmed right through that, this is the first time he's seen his father in over 25 years. And just a few chapters ago, we found out that he, his father found out that Joseph is alive. Up until this point, he thought his son was dead, thought he was devoured by a beast. And so, uh, what a sweet reunion we read about. Verse 30, And Israel said unto Joseph, now let me die, since I have seen thy face, because thou art yet alive. And Joseph said unto his brethren, and unto his father's house, I will go up, and show Pharaoh, and say unto him, My brethren in my father's house, which were in the land of Canaan, are come unto me. And the men are shepherds for their trade, uh, for their trade hath been to feed cattle, and they have brought their flocks and their herds, and all that they have. And it came to pass when Pharaoh, excuse me, and it shall come to pass when Pharaoh shall call you and shall say, what is your occupation that ye shall say, thy servants trade hath been about cattle from our youth even until now, both we and also our fathers, that ye may dwell in the land of Goshen. For every shepherd is an abomination unto the Egyptians. We'll continue on in chapter number seven, but we'll uh, pick up our reading in just a moment. Tonight, we're gonna be very practical very practical and hopefully very short. We'll see how that goes. But I'd like to talk to you about this subject tonight. Uh, and and I, I did not even know that she was going to sing that song, but there was a, a phrase, there was a lyric that she sang, what, God, uh, what a man deems broken, God can make beautiful. Tonight I'd like to talk to you about this subject in light of our text, from broken to blessed, or to borrow from her song, from broken to beautiful. Would you agree that uh, when we began our series, the uh, house of Jacob was a broken house? It's a broken family. They've been through a lot. And we've covered 10 chapters, but really this is the course of 25 years, over 25 years. And uh, if we were to say, and, and we didn't know, remember I said this, when you begin to look at the life of Joseph, any Bible character, look at it through the lens of if you didn't know what happened. Could you imagine going from Genesis 37 and finding ourselves in Genesis 47 and looking at all the things that have taken place and now we see this great family reunion and we see this restoration. What a beautiful picture. What a beautiful thing. Only God can do something like that. So we're going to look at that very quickly tonight. Let's pray and we'll begin. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day and for your many blessings and just blessing us with this wonderful opportunity to come and to fellowship with one another tonight, to bring a request before you and to pray over uh, each other and our needs, but also to worship you, Lord. I pray that you would help us to continue to do that even in the next hour. Lord, everything that we do would be honoring and glorifying to you. Lord, I can't help but think of the Midori family and uh, I do pray that you'd be with them, but... Uh, the things that are happening in that family and the situation that they find themselves in, Lord, it, it, it is very relatable to what we're going to be talking about tonight. Satan wants to see the family fail. 
He wants to see the family. Uh, he wants to disassemble what you've created. Lord, I pray that you'd be with the Midori family at this time. Lord, uh, I pray that you'd be with us today as, as we go over this text, that you'd show us uh, things that we can change and things that we can improve on. And uh, Lord, I, I want to advance in my Christian walk. I know that others who are listening, no doubt they want to do the same. Lord, I pray that you'd just show us very clearly what we can change in our lives so that we can be, be better vessels for you, better fathers, better mothers, uh, better children, Lord, and uh, better church members, Lord, for your honor and your glory. In Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for reading with me. Marriage was the first, and when I said marriage, how many of you thought I was going to go into Princess Bride? Marriage. Marriage was what? Okay. How many of you have never seen Princess Bride? You need to watch it. It's a good, it's a good one. It's a, it's a homeschool classic. <laughs> so marriage was the first institution that God organized before the entrance of sin and therefore assumed a permanent position in God's economy. Marriage, or the family, was one of three main institutions that God orchestrated in His Word. Yes, I said God orchestrated that. God orchestrated three different institutions. We could say He, he, uh, he, uh, um, he brought forth or orchestrated many institutions, but really it boils down to just three. The first we just referenced is the institution of the home. Or the family, God or, ordained that, he orchestrated that, he designed it. Uh, God also orchestrated the institution of the church. You're sitting in it right now. This is an institution, yes, but it was orchestrated and designed by God himself in his word. And then also, also you have obviously the government. Yes, the government, it's God's idea, not our idea. God is the one who designed government. And so we understand and know that God is the one who orchestrated these institutions. So would you agree with me tonight that he probably should have some sort of say in how these institutions operate and how they uh, function? Would you, would you agree that maybe he should be the one to decide on how they should operate? Absolutely, but one major problem. Although these institutions were orchestrated by God according to his purpose, Satan, in turn, has a very different agenda and game plan for all three of these institutions. And we could go on and on about what that agenda is, but simply put, it's this. What God has assembled, Satan wants to disassemble. What God has built up, Satan wants to tear down. Satan is doing everything in his power to see the demise of what God has established in the home, in the government, and in the local church. I could just park it right here and, and I, could just, I could talk without having to convince anybody that our government is, is it's in a very dangerous place right now. And you know what? You know why that is? It is not because God, it is not because of God's wrath. I believe it's because of the defilement and the destruction of the government system. And Satan is having his way in our government, in our country right now. I'd even go a step further and say, unfortunately, Satan is having his way in a lot of churches today. Satan is having his way in his churches in, 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 in the priority that God has established and in, in the way that he's orchestrated the church to function. The church has abandoned God's word and he, they've abandoned God's uh, alignment and his, uh, his, uh, his design for how the church should function. And now they've gone to more of a fleshly thinking, a selfish thinking, consumership and so forth. Uh, Satan is having his way in our country and Satan is having his way in our churches. And uh, could I persuade you of something tonight? Satan is good at his job. He's good at his job. If you came into this body tonight believing that Satan is just somebody who's just uh, kind of twirling his little tail. No, Satan is a real person. Uh, he's, a, he's a real being, and he is very good at his job. He's very deceptive. He's very smart, and he knows exactly what he's doing, and Satan fights dirty. Satan understands exactly how he can kill, watch this, three birds with one stone. 
He knows how he can kill three birds with one stone. What three birds? He wants to see the government fail, and he's having his way. He wants to see the church fail, but Satan knows this. I'm going to work smarter, not harder. If I can get the institution of the family to fail, the other two will follow right behind. And therefore, Satan has put all his eggs in one basket, and it is this, to see the family fail. He understands that if he can get the his grasp on, uh, upon the institution of the family that the others will follow right after. You need some examples. Okay, let's not even leave Genesis. Genesis chapter number two, Adam and Eve in the garden. The first sin in the Bible, I, I, this is not my own. I got this from Dr. Hardy, Dr. Uh, Dave Hardy, but Dr. Dave Hardy once said, and I thought that this was just phenomenal, uh, the first sin in the Bible might not have been the sin of the woman but a passive man because the Bible says that Eve eats of the fruit and what? Her husband with her. Adam was right there. Adam was not falling in line. Those of you who are at the marriage retreat, he was not in his divine order. And therefore, you see, the first sin in the Bible might have even been the passiveness of Adam. But nonetheless, there you have destruction. You have Satan from the very beginning in the second chapter of the Bible trying to destroy the family. Genesis 4, Lamech becomes a polygamist and marries multiple women. Genesis 9, Ham sees the nakedness of his father Noah. Genesis 16, Abraham commits adultery with Hagar and tries to take the place of God and saying, okay, God does not have this figured out. Let me take matters into my own hands. Genesis 19, Lot commits incest with his two daughters. Genesis 20, Abraham tempts Abimelech to lust after his wife Sarah. Genesis 25, Abraham, or excuse me, Isaac shows favoritism towards Esau over Jacob. Genesis 34, the men of Shechem defile Dinah, Jacob's daughter, and then later in that chapter, all the brothers, or excuse me, all the sons of, uh, of, uh, of Jacob go in and they kill all the men of the land. Genesis 38, man, we read about that a few weeks ago, the defilement of Tamar by her uh, father-in-law, Judah. And, and we could go on. We're not even out of the first book of the Bible. This is just within the first 38 chapters of the first book of the Bible. Would you agree with me? There's a major family problem. Every, I mean, if you were to search cover to cover from Genesis to Revelation, you would find, yes, we have a sin problem, and yes, we have a family problem, but I'd have you believe that the majority of the issues and the sins that you will find recorded in Scripture start with a family. They start with a family. Again, what God has assembled, Satan wants to disassemble. What God has built up, Satan wants to tear down. As we made our way through the story of Joseph and the house of Israel some 25 years, this has been a long journey. It's taken us 16 weeks to say what it's taken 25 years for God to say in Genesis chapter number, really 24 all the way through Genesis chapter number uh, 50. Again, as we've made our way through this study, one might ask the question or the questions, why is God going to such great lengths to bring Joseph and his family back into fellowship with one another? It's just one family. Why is God exhausting all his energy and resources to bring unity and balance back into the house of Jacob? I'll tell you why. God cares about the family. Families are worth fighting for in God's economy. God established the institution of the family. It's by God's design, and God loves the family, and therefore God looks at every family, yours and mine included, and Jacob's family, and says, hey, I want to see unity in the home. Let me ask you this question. Why would we devote an entire weekend to a family conference, or not a family conference, but a couples conference. That was a lot of money. That was a lot of money to fly Brother Rick Williams and his wife out to, to see us, and it was a lot of money for those of you that went. You know that you paid a lot of money to be able to go and to participate. Why did we spend so much money even to keep him over and to preach all day Sunday? That was a lot of money. We expended a, a lot of finances. We expended a lot of effort uh, inviting people. Why would we expedite so much energy, time, and resources into something for one weekend? I'll tell you why. The family's important. 
The institution of the family is of utmost importance to this, uh, for, uh, to this pastor and this church because the family institution is God's institution. And God believes that the family is worth fighting for, and so do we, because it's God's institution, because he loves the family. And God's desire, and we're going to talk about this in just a moment, but God's desire is to see every single family, both yours and mine included, to perform in unity and to fall in line with his divine plan. Why? He gets so much glory out of it. Man, he loves it. Whenever he looks down and he's a, he sees a family that is operating exactly how he designed it, God gets so much glory. And so therefore, God has decided families are worth fighting for. You say, Lamar, that sounds all well and good, but my family's too far gone. You, I, I've just kind of accepted it, that uh, my family is in the condition that it's in because of sin, and I've prayed about it, but I've kind of quit praying about it because there's no way that God is gonna have his way in my family. Hey, is your family worse off than Jacob's house? I mean, do you find yourself, uh, uh, do you find someone in your family sleeping with their daughter-in-law and, and, and having offspring? Do you find your family uh, taking one of their own and throwing them to a pit and throwing them into slavery or selling them into slavery? Is your family as, I mean, it might be dysfunctional, and I don't want to belittle that. I understand that we all have problems, and we shouldn't compare our problems with one another because what might not seem like a mountain to me is absolutely a mountain to you, but humanly speaking, would we all agree that if God can do a work in a family like Jacob's house, he could probably do a work in our house. So don't be discouraged. In Genesis 46 and verse, uh, in, in 47, in these chapters, I'd like us to just look at a few things very practically tonight and, and really just take directly from the text and, and, and highlight some areas and then make some basic application at the end. But here's what I want you to think about. I want you to think about this. Think about where we've come from. Think about Genesis 37. Think about every single message that has been preached in this series and think about all the different things that have taken place and think about the dysfunction and the, the vileness and the wickedness that took place in the house of Jacob and find where they are now in Genesis 47 in this great family reunion. And I want you to think about this. How did they go from broken to blessed? How did they go from broken to beautiful? A few things I'd like us to notice very quickly tonight. Number one, I want you to notice the family. I want you to notice the family. Number one, who, who makes this journey with Jacob and the 11 sons back to Goshen? Real quick, look at verse number 26. It says, all the souls that came with Jacob unto Egypt, which came out of his loins, besides Jacob's wives, all his souls were threescore and six. And the sons of Joseph, which were born in Egypt, were two souls. All the souls of his house of Jacob, which came into Egypt, were threescore and ten. Threescore and ten. So the book of Acts tells us there's about 70 people 70 people that leave the land of Canaan and enter into the land of Goshen. In this group that heads down to Egypt, to Goshen, you have Jacob and his wives. You have Jacob and his wives. You have 11 sons plus Joseph. That's 12 sons. You have one daughter. You have 52 grandchildren. Wow. Pastor, you got nothing on this guy. 52 grandchildren. And look at this. Four great-grandchildren. Four great-grandsons. We thought the Christian sins and the cradles were big. They got nothing on the house of Jacob. Jacob has got a huge family. And this family leaves Canaan and they go up to Goshen. And I said this last week. I said we were not going to go into great detail. Uh, how many of you just, you love genealogies? You think that they're awesome. You guys are absolutely weird. You're crazy. Why do you like, do you like the book of First and Second Chronicles? How many of you, you do good on your Bible reading until you get to those two books right there, First and Second Chronicles? So-and-so begat so-and-so begat so-and-so begat so-and-so. I, I was gonna skip over this, but the Lord would not let me get away from this because when you look at the names that are mentioned, it just kind of brings back into mind the idea that God did a crazy work. When you look at some of these names that are mentioned that we're gonna go over in just a moment, you can only come to the conclusion that God must have done something in the lives of this dysfunctional family. 
Again, in, the first, uh, in verse 8 through verse number 25, we're going to see some names highlighted. Verse number 10, you can go ahead and answer that, brother. It's okay. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> verse number 10. And the sons of Simeon, uh, Jemuel, and Jamin, and Ohad, and Jachin, and uh, Zohar, and Saul, the son of a Canish woman. Wow. Son of a Canish woman. Is that following God's design? No. God did not want them to infiltrate with the Canaanite people. God wanted them to uh, preserve the seed. Remember, he wanted them to marry uh, Hebrew women. And I'm not going to go and repreach this message again, but they're in the position that they are in because of the destruction and the uh, neglect of the fellowship of God in regards to Jacob. He's supposed to go to Seir, and what does he do? Goes to Shechem. And now look, his family is intermarrying with the Canaanite women. Look at verse number 12. And the sons of Judah, Ur, and Onan, and Selah, and what are those next two names? Perez and Zerah. But Ur and Onan died in the land of Canaan, and the sons of uh, Perez were Hezron and Hemuel. It doesn't reference who uh, uh, these two young men, doesn't reference who their mother is, but we know. Tamar. And you know who Tamar is? That's Judah's daughter-in-law. Wow. Look at verse number 13. And the sons of Issachar, uh, Tola, and, and I don't know if I'm pronouncing this right, Fuva. Uh, and then look at this next word, Job. Job and Shimron. Job, I, I don't know this to be true. I did very brief study, but some commentators, commentators believe that this is the Job, the Job that we read about in Scripture. You gotta look at this one. This one's the best one yet. Most important person ever recorded in Scripture. right here, verse number 21. And the sons of Benjamin were Bela and Baker and Eshbel, Gera and Naaman and Ehi and Rosh and Muppin and Huppin and... Man, what a name. I looked it up, and, and in the Hebrew, it means mighty man. No, I'm just kidding. It doesn't mean that. I just, I had to throw that in there. So we've got some 70 people. And I, I hope you listened to me when I read those names, and you remembered what these names represent. They represented the dysfunctional house of Jacob. And these are the people that leave uh, uh, Canaan, and they go into the land of Goshen uh, that Joseph had set apart for them. Were they perfect? By no means. Were they dysfunctional? You better believe they were dysfunctional. Did they have it all put together? No way, no how. But it, it's amazing to look and to consider all the things that have happened and all the things that have transpired in the lives of, of, of the house of Jacob and to consider where they're going. You have to give glory to God. You have to look at that situation and say, wow, what a God. We see the family. Number two, we see the father. We see the family, but then we see the father. I'm talking about Jacob, but I don't want to just talk about Jacob and his person. Uh, I'd like to, uh, us to look at how Joseph treats Jacob. This is very interesting to me. Joseph gives great attention and care to his father, and I believe that Joseph understood the principle of Exodus 20 and verse 12, although this had not been established yet, where it says, Honor thy father and thy mother, that thy days may be long upon the earth, which the Lord thy God hath given thee. Right from the very beginning, although this, this passage has not been written yet, Joseph understood, I need to bring honor to my father. He understood that principle. Could we pause here for just a moment and could we consider that? Could we consider the responsibility? There are two commands in scripture that God gives children in regards to their relationship to their parents. We just read about it, but it, it really is articulated very beautifully in Ephesians chapter number six and verse number one. You know the verse, church, so say it with me. Children, obey your parents in the Lord for it's convenient. For it's popular. No. For it's right. 
Why is it right? Because God said it's right. Children, obey your parents in the Lord. Hey, Lamar, this is uh, not children's church. Hey, I think we need to hear this. I think there's some people in here that need to understand that you have a responsibility to obey your parents. There are two commands, again, given, but the second one's recorded in verse number two. What's that first word? Honor. Honor thy father and mother, which is the first commandment with promise, that it may be well with thee. And then he says it just like he said in Exodus. And thou mayest live long on the earth. There are two requirements, there are two commands that are given in Scripture in regards to a child's relationship with their father, uh, their parents, obey and honor. If you're under the age of 18 and you live at home, stand. If you're under the age of 18, stand. Under the age of 18 and you still live in the home. You know you have a responsibility to obey your parents. I know that's practical, I told you I'd be practical tonight, but you have a responsibility to obey your parents. But can I tell you some exciting news? It's only temporary. All parents are like, what do you mean? What are you talking about? The, the command that's recorded in, in Scripture in regards to your responsibility to obey your parents, it's only temporary. You can be seated. As long as you live in the realm of your parents' authority, you have a responsibility to obey them. No matter what they say, no matter the responsibility that they give, no matter the parameters that they set up, whether you think that it makes sense or it doesn't, you have a responsibility to obey your parents, but it's just temporary. But the command to honor your parents is a lifelong commitment. There are no prerequisites for honoring your parents. It's lifelong. From the beginning of life to the end of your parents' life, even after that, the end of your life, you have a responsibility to honor your parents. I'm 26 years old. I've got a son. I've got a wife. I've been on my own for a long time. And if my dad were to walk, hey, don't record this part. If my dad were to walk in and look at me, he's a lot taller than me, a lot bigger than me. If he were to look at me and say, hey, you're never going to eat at Chick-fil-A again as, long as, I, as far as I'm concerned. You know what I'm going to say to my dad? Hey, I appreciate your input, um, but I'm my own man. Long has it, uh, the days passed where I have to obey the responsibility of my parents. I know I'm making light, but till the day that I die, I pray that the Lord gives me the discernment to honor my parents. It's a lifelong endeavor. It's a lifelong responsibility for you to honor your parents. And I just wanted to highlight that. The command to honor your father and your mother is a lifetime commandment. This principle is so amazingly illustrated in the life of Jacob, or excuse me, in the life of Joseph and how he treats his father. Look at verse number three. Uh, he couldn't even, uh, not verse number three, verse number three of Genesis chapter number 44. Uh, first thing he does is he makes this reveal, and he re remember we talked about this a few weeks ago, and he reveals himself, and he says, I am Joseph. What's the first words out of his mouth? Genesis chapter 44 and verse number three. And Joseph said unto his brethren, I am Joseph, doth my father yet live? He makes this reveal, but the concern shifts, and he is instantly concerned about the well-being of his father. The very first thing that Joseph was concerned about was his father. And considering who Joseph is at this point, remember he's second in the land of Egypt, he's second in command. That's a baffling thought to think that he never thought he was above this principle. He was never above this principle. He's second in command. He's calling the shots really for the second most powerful empire in all the world, but he still knew this, I need to honor my father. Real quickly, a few ways that he honored his father. Letter A, he provided provisions for Jacob. He provi provided provisions. We won't read it again, but at the end of Genesis 45, we see that Joseph has sent the wagons along with Pharaoh's wagons, and he sends these provisions to take care of the needs of his father, not just in his current condition, but also for the needs that he will have in his journey to Goshen. So how did Joseph honor his father? Well, he gave him provisions. Letter B, he shows passion for Jacob. He provides provisions for Jacob. He shows passion for Jacob. Verse 29 of our text, look at it. And Joseph made ready his chariot. Stop there. He made ready his chariot. He was anxiously anticipating the arrival of his father. He was excited about this. 
He loved his father. Up until this point, again in our text, Joseph has thought maybe his father is is dead, and for sure Jacob has thought that Joseph is dead. He's waiting. Joseph made ready his chariot and went up to meet Israel, his father, to Goshen, and presented himself unto him. Look at this. And fell on his neck and wept on his neck a good while. That means a long time. And Israel said unto Joseph, Now let me die, since I have uh, seen thy face, because thou art yet alive. What an exchange. What a, what a display of love and affection and passion. How did Joseph show honor to his father? Well, he provided the provisions. He shows passion. Let her see he was proud of his father. He was proud of Jacob. Look at this, uh, verse number 31. Look uh, at verse 31, it says, And Joseph said unto his brethren and unto his father's house, I will go up and show Pharaoh. And say unto him, my brethren and my father's house, which were in the land of Canaan, are un- come unto me. Here's a quick question. Did, did Pharaoh know that his parents were coming? Did Pharaoh know that his house was coming? Yeah. We talked about this a few weeks ago, but remember Joseph goes and he tells them about this journey that they're going to make back to the land of Canaan and bring them back. And what does Pharaoh do? Pharaoh says, absolutely, Joseph. Matter of fact, I'm going to add to it. I'm going to take and give them some extra provisions and give them some extra clothing. So Pharaoh knew full and well, but here's Joseph coming. Hey, my dad's here. I got to go tell him again. He's excited. Why? He's proud. But I want you to think about this. Our text closes by these instructions that Joseph gives to his brethren and telling them to not hide and shy away from the fact that they're shepherds. Remember how the Egyptians viewed the shepherds? I want you to wrap your mind around this. I'm going somewhere. The, the, way, that they, they viewed the, the, the way that they viewed the Hebrews, rather, was they viewed them as slaves. They viewed them as despicable, uh, the scum of the earth. But then to add insult to injury, they despised, the end of our text says, they despised the shepherds. So these are not only Hebrews. These are not only shepherds. These are Hebrew shepherds and here is Joseph at this point in his life he's established himself in Egypt they probably looked at Joseph and thought he was more Egyptian than Hebrew maybe they didn't even know that he was Hebrew but can you wrap your mind around the idea that your father who is a shepherd who's a Hebrew comes to town and he goes and he shows him around town says hey here's my here's my dad brought honor to his dad because he was proud of him loved his father gives the provisions shows passion he's proud of his father letter D he was protective of Jacob He was protective of Jacob. Go to Genesis 47, verse number 11, very quickly. And Joseph placed his father and his brethren and gave them a a possession in the land of Egypt in the best of the land, in the land of the Ramses, as Pharaoh had commanded. And Joseph nourished his father and his brethren and all his brethren's house with bread according to their families. So he's very protective of his father. I'm just saying all this to say this. Joseph honored his father. Joseph had compassion on his father. He loved his father. So we see the family. We see the family, that, uh, the Genesis 37 family. This family, they leave Canaan and they go into the land of Egypt. Not only that, we see the relationship that Joseph has, the respect and the honor that Joseph has for his father. Number three, I want you to write this down, the farewell. The farewell in, in verse number nine. And Jacob said unto Pharaoh, the days of the years of my pilgrimage are 130 years. Stop right there. So Jacob is 130 years when he makes this journey. 130 years young. Makes this journey from Canaan and enters into the land of Egypt. Skip down to verse 28. And Jacob lived in the land of Egypt 17 years. So the whole age of Jacob was 140 and 7 years. And the time drew nigh that Israel must die. So we kind of have this understanding of the text that Jacob longs to see Joseph. And then the Bible says that he sees Joseph and, and now I can die in peace. But he actually gets to 
fellowship with his son for 17 years there in the land of Egypt. Has the opportunity to take, there's nothing he can do to take back the years that he's lost. The 25 years that were lost while, while they were separated. But nonetheless, God gives them uh, the fellowship for 17 years. And, and it, comes, uh, it comes to the end of Jacob's life. Now we're going to begin the, the uh, farewells, the closing address. It's going to take us three chapters to get through this. But all this is covered in just a few short days. And in the parting chapters of Jacob's life, he calls Joseph to his side in verse number 29. And here's what he says. And the time drew nigh that Israel must die. And he called his son Joseph and said unto him, If now I have found grace in thy sight, put, I pray thee, my hand under my thigh, and deal kindly with, uh, excuse me, and deal kindly and truly with me. Bury me not, I pray thee, in Egypt, but I will lie with my fathers, and thou shalt carry me out of Egypt and bury me in the burying place. And he said, I will do as thou said. And he said, Swear unto me, uh, swear unto me, and he swore unto him. So he, he gives these closing remarks. And again, we've got a couple of more chapters where Joseph and Jacob are gonna have some intellect, but this is really the last meaningful conversation that Jacob and his father have. We're gonna see these blessings and these cursings that he goes over, but this is the last meaningful conversation that he has in this farewell departure in the life of Jacob. And he says this, hey, don't bury me here. Don't bury me in Egypt. I don't wanna be buried here. I wanna be buried with my fathers, Isaac and, and Abraham and so forth. And so he gives these closing remarks and he makes Joseph promise that he won't bury him here in Egypt. And so we see the family, this family that uproots themselves and leaves the land of Canaan and enters into the land of Goshen. We see the father and the relationship that Joseph has with his father. He loved his father and showed compassion. We see the closing remarks, the farewell that uh, Jacob gives in these closing chapters of Genesis, chapter number 47, and we'll continue on. A and lastly tonight, I want us to see this very simply, the formula, the formula number four. As we look at the closing chapters of Genesis and consider how we got from Genesis 47, or rather 37, to Genesis chapter number 37, or 47. I want us to consider, how did, how did they come from this place of brokenness to the place of blessedness? Can you think with me? How have they come from this place of brokenness to the place of beauty? Everything that transpired, everything that we've gone over really has been negative. Everything that we've gone over from Genesis 37 really all the way up to last week in Genesis chapter number 45 has been negative. It's been all the difficult trials and circumstances that Joseph has gone through, Jacob's gone through, and the family has gone through. How did we go from that to restoration and beauty? and curse, uh, blessings that Jacob is gonna give, and, and, and a fellowship. Remember the, the kind of relationship that Jacob and his brothers had, and now they're brought to this position of restoration. How does this happen, and how can it happen? How do we go from sour to sweet? A few things quickly, and we'll be done. Letter A, I want you to write this down. God's provision. God's provision. As we read through the life of Joseph and in the house of Jacob, and as we read and we progress through these chapters, we cannot come to the conclusion that they got from where they were to where they are because of Jacob's manipulation. Remember, Jacob is a manipulator, he's a liar, his name means deceiver, one who comes from behind for an advantage. This whole life, Jacob has spent his life deceiving and lying and instigating and trying to get forth uh, the, the end product that he wants through his deception. But this product that we find in Genesis 47 could not come by that, that method. It couldn't even come by the motivation of Joseph himself. The best of intentions could not bring forth this result that we read about. If Joseph were faithful every single day uh, to do what he needs to do in and of himself, he would not have the capability, he would not have the, the, uh, the ability to be able to bring forth this kind of change and restoration, not in, not in and of himself. The reason that this family went from broken to blessed had everything to do with the provisions of God himself. 
and the fact that God is a sovereign and a righteous God. And if a work is going to be done in the family, if, if something is going to happen where a family is going to come from a place of brokenness to a place of blessedness, it's going to come by God. It has to come by God. When it comes to your family, when it comes to my family, we don't have what it takes. Thanks, Lamar, for the encouragement tonight. I really needed that. We don't have what it takes. I, I, I just this past week while we were there and those of you who were there with us, wasn't it wonderful to hear the preaching and the teaching and so forth, but I don't know if, if it's the case for, for the rest of you that went, but for me, the farther along he got in Genesis, or not Genesis, but in Second Peter chapter three, the more discouraged I became. Because as he began to go over these different things that are required to have a successful marriage and for thing, these things that are going to require me and my wife to be in fellowship with one another as God would see fit, I don't have what it takes to complete that. With every point, I'm like, man, I can't do that. There's no way. I can't love my wife and be able to love the ministry, and I can't have the balance that I need to have in the family, in the home, in the work, and I can't. All these different things that he began to go over, I became more and more discouraged in knowing this. I don't have what it takes, but then he got to verse number seven. Verse number seven of, of First uh, Peter chapter three says this, likewise ye husbands, dwell with them according to knowledge, give honor unto thy uh, the wife as the weaker vessel, and here it is, and as being heirs together of the grace of life, that your prayers be not hindered. You know what he was saying, uh, brother, brother Rick, I mean, he so beautifully exploited this passage, and he said, you know what this says? You don't have what it takes. You don't have what it takes. We in and of ourselves don't have what it takes, but when we follow and we get into line where God is the, has the preeminence in our life and God has the priority in our life, then it says we are heirs together by the grace of life. It takes grace. It takes grace. It takes God's provision. It takes God's sovereignty to be able to see us come from a place of brokenness to a place of blessedness. The formula for family restoration involves God's provision. It's got to be a God thing. Letter B, the formula for family restoration involves God's plan. God's plan. We understand that God's overall plan was to preserve the bloodline of the coming Messiah. We talked about that just a few weeks ago and how God is going to bring forth blessedness out of a brokenness. In, in that Genesis chapter number 38 and all the things that transpire in the life of Judah and this infidelity and the fact that he goes in unto his daughter-in-law Tamar and he brings forth these sons, God does a great work and God brings forth the line of Ju the tribe of Judah, his son Jesus Christ through the line of the tribe of Judah. God does that. But, but th that was his plan, overall plan. That's the way that God looked at it. And he said, I'm gonna have my way. I've established this covenant with Abraham and I'm gonna bring forth my son, Jesus Christ, through this line. And so the overall plan was to preserve the messianic or the Abrahamic line. That's why God put them in bondage for 400 years. We talked about that last week. That's why God is gonna bring them to this position of bondage because he wants them to be separated. He doesn't want them to infiltrate and he wants them to be slaves so that he can preserve this line. So from the very beginning, we see that God's intention and his plan was to preserve the messianic line. He wants to preserve the line of his son, Jesus Christ. But don't fool yourself into thinking that that is only God's intention. Don't fool yourself into thinking that the family of Jacob was just a pawn in the life of, of the line of, of the tribe of Judah. Don't think that God was just uh, skirting them aside because he had bigger plans in order. Yes, God wanted to see his, the Abrahamic covenant uh, con, uh, uh, fulfilled and he wanted to see his son, Jesus Christ, come through the line, uh, the line of Judah. But the reason that God, uh, remember what we left, left with, the reason that God was so careful and he was so caring for this family is because he loves the family. The reason that God was so, uh, he was so influential and he expedited so much resources and time and energy into restoring this family is not just because he wanted to fulfill the, his, uh, his uh, covenant, but he wanted to see the family succeed because he loves the family. 
if God's only intention was to bring, excuse me, if God's only intention for bringing this family back together was to preserve the lineage of Jesus Christ, he could have done what he chooses to do in other passages like First and Second Chronicles and just reference these descendants in passing. So-and-so begat so-and-so and Jacob begat this person and this person and this person and all the way down through the line and get to, get to Jesus Christ, but God doesn't do that. God takes half of the first book of the Bible. 20, uh, Genesis 24 is where Jacob is first introduced on the scene. And for the rest of Genesis, God takes half of the first book to talk about this family restoration. Why? Yes, he wants to preserve his line, but he wants to show us something. That only God can take something that is broken and bring blessedness. I believe, again, that God takes almost half of this first book of the Bible to show us his plan for the family. And how he can restore it. Why? He loves the family. Oh, God loves the family. He, he instituted the family. He's the one who organized and ordained it. And therefore, he loves it. And he wants to do everything in his power to see every single family succeed. Even when Satan disassembles the institution that God created, he wants to rebuild and he wants to start a new and afresh. God loves every family, even the broken ones. God loves every family, even the broken ones. That's kind of a redundant statement because in a way, shape, or form, we're all broken, aren't we? All of us are broken to some extent in our family. The formula for family restoration involves God's provision. It's gotta be a God thing. God has to do the work. The formula for family restoration involves God's plan. Letter C, the formula for family restoration involves God's purpose. His purpose for the family. We talked about this at the beginning, but I'll say again. The purpose behind the institution of the family is no different than any other uh, creation of God. He wants to get glory out of it. That's why God has orchestrated the family is because he wants to get glory out of the family. Because when the institution of the family is working according to his design, God gets a lot of glory. God loves it. Matter of fact, I would say this. How many of you, uh, today was kind of a crystal clear day. How many of you uh, on your way to work or away from work, you saw Mount Rainier? How many of you have ever seen Mount Rainier? Isn't it beautiful? We live in a beautiful state. I, I, love, I love driving. I, I hate snow, but I have to admit that the snow was beautiful as it fell and before anybody stepped on it or drove on it. Isn't that a pretty thing to see just the, the big old clumps of snow? And, and, and God's, God's handiwork in creation is a beautiful thing. As you drive down and, and no doubt you see the evergreens and you see the mountains, you see, uh, you see everything that God has meticulously put into motion. God did that. But you know something that is more glorious, something that is more magnificent is the institution of the family when it's run how God designed it? God looks down on his creation and he said it is good, but when he looks down on his creation in the family and he sees a family that is walking circumspectly to his will, he sees a family that is, is operating exactly how he designed it, God gets a lot of glory from that. The formula, excuse me, the formula for family restoration involves God's provision. It's gotta be a God thing. The formula, formula for family restoration involves God's plan. The formula for family restoration involves God's purpose. <clears throat> Lastly, letter D, the formula for family restoration involves God's priority, or I could say it this way, God as a priority. God as a priority. When we closely examine the house of Jacob, the moment that things transform from broken and begin progressing towards the direction of blessed or beautiful was when God became the priority, here it is, in the leader of the home. Genesis chapter number 46, we read about it last week, but Genesis chapter number 45, we see the reveal and how Joseph gives these instructions for them to go back to Canaan and, and to tell their father he's alive, remember? 
And it takes some convincing, but finally he's convinced. And we close Genesis chapter number 45 with the words, uh, it is enough, I will go and see Joseph before I die. First thing that we see Jacob doing in Genesis 46, verse number one, it says, and Israel took his journey with all that he had and came to Beersheba and offered sacrifice unto the God of his father Isaac. And God spake unto Israel in the visions of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob, and he said, here am I. And he said, I am God, the God of thy father. Fear not to go down unto Egypt, for I will there make of thee a great nation. I will go down with thee into Egypt, and I will also surely bring thee up again, and Joseph shall put his hands upon thine eyes. The first thing that Joseph does, or excuse me, the first thing that Jacob does, he doesn't have everything put together. As a matter of fact, Joseph does the right thing and everything doesn't just fall into place. This is a process that's going to have to take place. For the last 25 years, he's remained silent. I believe that he was bitter and he was angry at God. I don't know, but he was nonetheless angry at his circumstances, angry that the son of his promise was taken away from him. But the first thing that he does is get his priorities in order. And the moment that he does that, he begins to worship and God begins to move. Did you notice that? The first thing that he did was he didn't begin to, to draw out this plan and say, okay, I've got to get my family in order, and so he begins to, no, he says God's going to have to be first, and so he goes and he worships. But did you notice that when he worships, everything was not put together? That's an important lesson that I just hinted on last week, but you have a responsibility to worship God whether things are going well or they're not. But you'll be surprised that when you find that spirit and that attitude of worship and you begin to exalt the Lord, that things begin to work in the right order. When, when God has the priority in your life in regards to the family, especially you fathers, you'll be surprised at what God can do or rather what he won't do when you, your priorities are not in order. First thing that Joseph or Jacob does is he begins to worship. But I love what it says. It says, once he gets his priorities in order, verse number four says, I will go down with thee into Egypt. I will go down with thee into Egypt. This journey is gonna be a long journey. Again, everything is not put together, but guess what? I'm gonna be with you. When I am priority in your life, Jacob, and you begin to worship me and you exalt me, my spirit is gonna be there with you. And this journey, it's not gonna be easy, but don't worry, I will go with you to Egypt. The moment that Jacob gets his priorities in order, again, although it didn't happen instantaneously, God says, okay, I can work with this now. I can work with this now. He looks at the family in shambles, and the moment that the leader of the home began to get things in order, God says, okay, at this point now, I think I can do a great work. In closing, again, I just want to say this. God loves the family. God loves the family. I'll personalize it. God loves your family. If you're here tonight, God loves your family and God wants to see it succeed because he loves the family but also because he gets great glory and honor and praise whenever a family is operating exactly how he has designed it. He designed it. He orchestrated it in Genesis chapter number three. But just as God has built it up, Satan wants to tear it down. Satan has a great desire to see the family institution fail. He'll put all his eggs in that basket because he knows he works smarter, not harder. He knows that if he can get the family to fail, everything will fall after that. And therefore, every person in this room, every family in this room, whether you're single, whether you have many kids, whether you're married or you're not, God, or excuse me, Satan has his crosshairs on your family and he wants to see it fail. So if you're here tonight, let me just ask you this question. Are things going great? Are things going great? Are, are you finding unity in the home? Praise the Lord for that. I said, praise the Lord for that. You ought to glory in, in, in the provisions of God and say, thank you so much, Lord, that I have children that are walking in the nurture and admonition of the Lord and, and we're able to serve together and there's unity in the home. Hey, praise the Lord for that, but don't take it for granted. Don't take it for granted because it's a God thing and when we can begin to get our priorities out of whack, just like that, Satan has exposure and has a roaring line. He seeks who we may devour, especially families. 
But maybe you're here tonight, and I would say that this would probably describe most of us. You come from brokenness. I'm not talking about divorce, though that might be a thing. I'm talking about your family might not operate exactly how God has intended it to operate. How many of you, just be honest, you have a prodigal son or a daughter that you've been praying for for a long time, been praying that the Lord would have his will in their life? How many of you, maybe you have parents that are not saved? How many of you have uh, maybe a, a mom or a dad who is saved but they're not following the Lord? Here's a, here's, a, here's a very pointed, specific one. How many of you have one parent that is serving the Lord and another that is not? My heart goes out to you. That's, that's a hard place to be. I've, I've never been in that position. I'm so thankful that my parents raised me and that, that they're still married and that they're serving the Lord, but man, my heart goes out to people who, who they don't have that example and their parents maybe are divided. Hey, there's brokenness in this church. There's people all around. You would, you would be baffled if you found out some of the things that are taking place and some of the trials that they are going through. And why is that? Because Satan knows what he's doing. Man, Satan fights dirty, he fights wicked, but I can tell you this right now, God desires for there to be unity in the home. God desires to have his will in his way because he loves the family, not just because he wants to see his will taken place, but because he gets great glory when the family operates exactly how it operates. And so if you're here tonight, let me just, let me just ask you, are you broken? God wants to make it beautiful. But he can't do that, and, and I need to be careful. I intended to say this just a moment ago, but just because you push all the right buttons doesn't mean your family's gonna serve the Lord. Just because you push the right buttons doesn't mean your kids are gonna turn out right. I wish that that were the case. I wish that there was just a metric that we could follow and a list that we could follow that would ensure and guarantee that if we do X, Y, Z, that it's going to glean a family that is absolutely perfect and does everything right. Uh, unfortunately, that's not the case, but can I tell you something? It won't happen aside of the intervention of God. It won't happen as long as, unless God provides and God gives those provisions and God has his plan played out and God has his purpose played out in your family's life, it won't happen aside from that. I don't know, this is very practical, but maybe you've grown weary in your prayer life for your family. I'm gonna be honest, there's been times in my life where there's been a specific thing that I've prayed for and I've prayed for it for a long time and I just come to the point where I'm like, well, I guess God's not gonna answer that. Hey, never stop praying for your loved ones. Never stop praying for your family members that are struggling. Never stop praying for the salvation of those that we go over on Wednesday nights. You never know what God can do. It's not gonna happen aside from God's intervention. God wants to take every family in this room and bring them from a place of brokenness to a place of blessedness. And it's not gonna happen aside from his intervention. If you'll stand your feet, we'll go into our prayer time. Lord, I pray that